Welcome to Your Next Chapter, the podcast dedicated to you. The podcast dedicated to providing you with tips, tricks, and resources to live life you want. Your Next Chapter provides you with people who are living rad and inspirational lives to gain insights from to conquer the next chapter of your life. Whether you want to start a business, a new career, get in the best shape of your life, or create better routines and structure for yourself, Your Next Chapter provides you with guests to help you draw inspiration, insight, and wisdom from to lead the life you want. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If this is your first episode, thank you for stopping by. My guest today is Asante Hottenton. Asante comes from a non-traditional background. His father left their family at a young age. He grew up in subsidized housing in Toronto, basically the ghettos. His mother was suicidal. He battled anxiety, depression, and addiction throughout his youth. Yet today, he's a motivational speaker. He's a support worker for children. He's been on mental health panels and recently spoke in Chile. I brought Asante onto the show because I wanted him to share his experiences with mental health and how he was able to overcome adversity in his life. The podcast really has two parts to it from my point of view. The first is Asante's story. I really give him an opportunity to lay some foundations and groundwork and talk about his life experience in the first 30 minutes. And the second 30 minutes really becomes a lot more tactical and we talk about how to work through mental health emotions that we may be experiencing. So without further ado, here's Asante. Hey Asante, thank you so much for joining me. I am honored to have you on the line here. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me tonight. Hey, not a problem. Um, I'm very honored to be here myself. So just uh, thank you for the opportunity. Let's get right into it. I always like by starting off asking all my guests, if your life was a book title, what would be the title of your book? Well, I think... For me, uh, what I would say is waiting for sunrise. I know a bit about your story, but has there been a lot of darkness in your life? Is that why the metaphor waiting for sunrise, it's really about, you know, walking through your darkness and waiting for that moment where the light's going to come? That is pretty much it. (laughs) Yeah, I I would say that's exactly it. Um, Yeah, I, I would say that my life is very much something that, it's been hard, and there have been a lot of um, dark moments and, you know, just periods that were dark. Not moments, but periods of my life that were dark. And learning how to just survive through those times and um, staying awake to a better future, staying awake to hope. And I'm looking forward to getting into some of those moments Right now, talk a bit about what your current chapter looks like. Give some context to the audience about what you do in your day-to-day life and what you do so that way people know a bit more about you. It kind of feels like I have a few careers happening at the same time. <laughs> um, so my main 9-to-5, so to speak, is I do um, some community work, some youth work. Um, some people call it social work, whatever want to call it, but I work with youth from a quote-unquote uh, priority neighborhood, so 
neighborhood that has traditionally had challenges in terms of socioeconomics and um, with, with social, socioeconomics all usually comes crime and things of that nature. Um, so I work in a neighborhood like that where there's been a high dropout rate. I work for a company um, called Pathways to Education. And what I do with them is I am a caseworker pretty much for youth. I carry 46 youth on my caseload right now. And my job is to help them through high school um, on to post-secondary college, university, and support them pretty much any way possible. What that usually looks like is I'm a mentor, I'm a counselor, I'm a big brother figure, I'm a I'm I'm an advocate. I'm sometimes I'm I'm just you know a cool guy or I uh, try to be. <laughs> I do whatever my job entails when it's needed for the person who needs it. So it involves a lot of figuring out what someone else needs. And sometimes it just really means listening to what they're telling you, um, whether directly or indirectly, and then supporting those gaps, helping them develop um, a higher self-esteem. And usually better self-esteem leads to better decision-making in my experience. Um, beyond that, I, I do a lot of public speaking. Um, I, I go around the city of Toronto, the GTA, Greater Toronto area, doing a lot of public speaking. Um, you know, I'm, I'm branching out a little bit. I've been on panels, you know, in New York and um, in other cities in Canada. Um, I just got back from Columbia a few weeks ago, doing some public speaking out there. You know, just talking mostly about my life and experiences I've had in my life and what I've learned from them and how to maintain hope. Because, like I said earlier, there have been a lot of dark moments and just yeah so um speaking normally from a mental health perspective but also intertwining other messages and themes and elements into it so yeah that's what i do generally <laughs> it sounds like it's really gratifying and rewarding work let's talk a bit about your early chapters i watched a. Uh... You sent me a video link of one of your talks prior to this podcast, and I did watch it, so I know a bit of your story there. But for the audience, talk a bit about how you were brought up and you know how you use that life experience now to do some public speaking around that. And go in you know, as in-depth as you want. We can kind of probe around in there because I think it's really fascinating. But give people an overall idea of kind of how you grew up and what your story is, and we can go from there. How I grew up... Uh... Um, you know, I was born in Jamaica, but raised raised here in Toronto, probably from the age of about three years old. So, um, but you know, I, I find that when people in Canada say they're poor, they're not actually poor. It's just they're poor by Canadian standards. Um, I was actually just like actually poor. Um, you know, struggling with food and money in the household, and um, you know, it was myself, my mom, two older brothers. My my parents divorced when I was about five years old. Ended up in a shelter, um, came out of the shelter, ended up in the projects, and then grew up um, until my 20s in the projects and just dealing with various things. I would say dealing with challenges in my environment, things like drugs, prostitution, crime, and just the temptations of those things as well. And sometimes me succumbing to those things. At home, there was a lot of chaos between my parents. 
and sometimes chaos between my siblings and just, um, you know, a lot of difficulties at home. There were long periods of time where my mom was just not home very much, either because she was working really hard to try to support the family or she was sick in and out of the hospital with mental health issues. I developed my own mental health issues as a teenager. For me personally, it was uh, depression and anxiety for my mom. Um, depression, but also hallucinations and hearing voices and um, delusions, things of that nature. So, uh, and yeah, just being poor on top of all of that. So that was extra stressful. Um, you know, sometimes having to steal food, getting food out of food banks, which is, you know, usually not the greatest stuff. And, you know, eating because people gave you donations and, you know, it just... It was rough. <laughs> There's a lot that I can say about it, but just overall, it was it was pretty rough. And there were a lot of days where I just wished for something to be different. I look back on probably the first 20 years of my life, and it seems like that life happened to a different person. And it's it's hard to imagine that that is where the current me is coming from, because it's just hard to imagine how anyone could have survived that life and made it out relatively healthy, um, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, et cetera. One thing that really stuck out from the video that you sent me, you tell a story where you're watching the Euro Cup, I believe it was with your brothers, one Sunday afternoon, and at the door you heard a knock and there was two men there in uniforms and they said they were from the suicide task force. And you guys went upstairs and you found your mom on the floor surrounded by pills saying she can't go on. Talk a bit about this experience and you can retell the story if I, you know, didn't do justice to it. But how did you feel when you found her? What impact did that have on your life? I would say that is probably the single most important day of my life um, in the sense that everything just changed on that day. Um, innocence lost kind of thing. You know, Pandora's box was open. How old were you when that happened? Uh, I believe I was, it was, I was 14 or just turned 15 around that time. Um, it was the summer after grade nine for me. And so, yeah, I think I, I'm I'm born in the summer, so I think I just turned 15 years old, I believe, right before I turned 15. And when you say it changed you, like it opened up Pandora's box of experience, talk a bit more about that and how you felt when you found her and the impact that had on your life. Um, How long do you get? <laughs> um, like, yeah, it was just, it was so surreal because... You know, my mom, she's always been a rather introverted person. So she would spend a lot of time to herself. And, you know, myself and my two older brothers, we just kind of accepted that. And, you know, when she was in her own space, we left her alone. And, you know, sometimes she would come out and spend time with the family. And that's just how it was. Right. Um, so anyway, we're watching this game, Euro Cup 2000, France versus Italy. Um we're all really big sports people in my family. So we're watching the game and um, we get the knock on the door. Um, suicide crisis hotline. They're saying they're looking for 
a lady named Jasmine. That's my mom's name. I'm thinking this is really weird. I'm not sure what's going on, um, but also not thinking too much of it. I'm like kind of still focused on the game. I'm like, I just want to get this over with and go back to watching the game because, you know, soccer doesn't take any breaks. <laughs> so um, I let these guys in the house and go upstairs and, yeah, open my mom's bedroom door and she's on the floor and she's got these pills scattered around her. Um, she's saying that she doesn't want to go on anymore and, you know, just she's crying. She's hysterical. And I, up until that point, I think I had seen my mom cry once and it wasn't like a deep cry. You know, it was just like a cry. This was like painful cry. Yeah, like desperate. Indescribable. It, it was like looking at that um, that painting, the scream. And it, yeah, you know, it was it was really painful to see my mom this way because, you know, she was always the strong one, the stoic, kept it together. She was the rock, and then everything kind of shattered. Um, you know, like I guess the perception that I had of her as this person who was unshakable that shattered. Um, and then, you know, I was extremely shocked. I just did not know what to think. I don't know if I was thinking anything. It's just, it was what I assume an outer outer body experience would feel like. It was kind of like my, my spirit left my body for a little while there. Um, like I dissociated. And I all I remember is seeing my mom. Um, they eventually put her in an ambulance and took her to a hospital. I don't remember any of those events. It's just like I, I kind of like blacked out while still being conscious. Um, you know, my oldest brother was talking to the suicide hotline guys and um, the people in the ambulance. And my other brother, who was like this super like macho, like, athlete tough guy got into fights kind of guy you know he just like locked himself in the bathroom and started crying um like he just broke down completely uh and you know so a regular sunday turned into this uh just a scene of devastation and it was like Imagine your life was like a tapestry and then someone just came in with a knife and just this, just decided to just start slashing at it indiscriminately. That's what this moment felt like in the fabric of my life. Um, and then from there, you know, it's just been trying to put things back together. You know, after that, my mom, you know, they took her to the hospital. They gave her some antidepressants. They said, take these pills. She'll be okay. Um, and, you know, Hearing that news, my brothers and I, we were relieved, thinking, yeah, you know, that's gonna, that's it. She's going to be good. Um, that wasn't the case. Uh, over the next several years, she got worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, some more suicide attempts and, you know, back and forth to the hospital, in and out, in and out of the hospital, probably for the next two or three years of my life. Um, and then after that, just being unable to work, recovering just completely changed everything because 
she she went from being someone who was a parent to being someone who needed caregiving after. And it was a really tough transition because my father was not at all in my life at that point. And my brothers were not home very much. My oldest brother was away at school and my other brother was working and partying a lot. And so for me, I became the caregiver trying to take care of him while trying to figure out my own life. And just everything just went out of control and just, I was like debris in a tornado. Without without your mom and your dad around, because it doesn't sound like, you know, from that point, your mom was kind of, you know, like you said, you need to kind of care for her more than she was able to care for you. Who essentially raised you then? Nobody. <laughs> I just kind of figured it out, trial and error. I would say pretty much from that point on, I raised myself. Talk a bit about in high school, you started getting, you started having your own troubles with mental illness. Talk a bit about that and what started experiencing, what started happening for you in high school. Okay, uh, I think troubles, that word is a bit of an understatement. <laughs> Honestly, um, I would say that I started to feel different yeah, to, towards the end of grade six. Things were just kind of unstable at home, and you know, I, I didn't have any support from my father. I felt very abandoned by him. At that point, he was still in my life, but scarcely. Yeah, I think in grade six, I saw him once throughout the year and there was a moment where I called him this is me as like an 11 year old kid no he called the house and I was very surprised and he wanted to talk to me so you know we're talking on the phone for about 10 minutes and and then out of nowhere I asked him why don't you love me and then he didn't answer he just it was just dead space on the phone um dead noise just nothing and I just broke down completely uh, I just was just torn apart man just I just started crying hysterically and that was the moment where I lost faith in my father and probably the moment where I began to develop resentment for him and I did develop a very deep resentment for him ironically him and I now have a pretty good relationship well that's another story um, <laughs> but at the time um, I just was pretty much like that's it like, me and him were done. Um, he could be dead for as far as I care. But, yeah, so me and my troubles, uh, depression, I mean, I find, I think when it really started to hit was after my mom, uh, after the first incident with her, the Euro Cup, um, that, that day of the Euro Cup. And, you know, I went back to school in grade 10 and... I was very lonely. All of my friends from the previous year in school were gone. Most of them had either dropped out or became involved in crime or were currently incarcerated at like 14, 15 years old. That's the kind of neighborhood I was in. <laughs> and so I, I was, I went back to school and I had no support there in terms of friends. And at home, I had no support. My, my oldest brother away at school, my other brother just partying and experimenting with drugs. And my mom, you know, dealing with her mental health issues and me kind of having to look after her. 
And I became very, very depressed really quickly. And I had extremely low self-esteem. In fact, I thought my issue was just self-esteem. I didn't realize I was depressed probably until I was around 19, 20, 21 years old. So I, I just thought I had very low self-esteem and low confidence. And I felt very guilty about this. Um, I felt guilty about not feeling normal. I felt guilty about feeling like I was less than others. And I, I started to get this really bad anxiety where I had difficulty talking to people. Then it became difficulty leaving my home. Uh, I would literally, like, my heart's desire would be to just go outside. The only purpose, the only way I ever went outside was to go to school or to throw out the garbage in the dumpster that was probably about 40, 50 feet, you know, from my backyard. But there were times I wanted to go outside just so I could maybe meet someone or go to the community center and try to make some friends or, you know, go to an activity after school that I wanted to go to. But what would happen was I would get dressed. I'd put my shoes on. I'd be trying to talk myself up. You can do this. You can do it. Um, why are you so scared? Um, why can't you go outside? Um, so talking myself up, but also talking myself down. And so I would get ready, put on my shoes, my jacket, everything. And then as I would get closer to the door, I would feel more and more anxiety just bubbling up inside of me to the point that by the time I got to the door and put my you know, my hand on the doorknob, I, I would just be crippled by anxiety. And there are many, many times where I ended up sitting in front of the door wishing I had the strength to open this door and step outside of it and never being able to find that strength. Um, so pretty serious anxiety issues. Did you talk to anyone about your depression or anxiety? Did you have anyone to open up to about what you were struggling with? Not really. There were times where I broached the topic, but not times where I went in depth. It's it's kind of like one of those things where you don't want to tell everybody everything all at once because you, I didn't want them to think badly of me or think I was um, soft or weak or punk or anything like that or to think I was weird or different or ridicule me or reject me. This was my assumption. This is how I felt everybody would treat me if I spoke up about what I was experiencing. So um, I did kind of broach the topic to my mom a little bit. I don't find that her response was helpful. Uh, to my two brothers, again, I did broach the topic a little bit. Um, again, I don't find that their response was uh, helpful. It was a lot of kind of, you know, get over it. Or people providing me with, with solutions when I wanted them to listen. You know? Yep. And that's what happens a lot when we turn to people for, you know, help sometimes. We start sharing our problems and opposed to them just listening, they start giving you answers. And it's like you're not always looking for answers. Sometimes you just want, like you said, somebody to listen to you. Exactly. I'm curious to know, though, how did you, you know, with everything going on around you in your life, you know, a lot of us, you have a lot of instability and not the best environment. How were you able to, you know, get good grades and focus? I guess you said it didn't come easy, but how were you able to still create that space to even execute on getting good grades? 
it's funny. In grade seven and eight, um, my grades were not very good. I got to high school, and I don't know. I just did the work. Um, well, I showed up to class is what I'll say. It's funny because I, I tell the kids I work with this all the time. Half the battle is just showing up to class every day. And it's really speaking from my own experience. Yeah, I just really showed up to class every day. That was it. I showed up to class every day. I tried to complete the work in class because I was so depressed and anxious that when I went home, I was not focused on no homework. That was not a part of my you know, home routine. My home routine was kind of, you know, listening to enough music, playing enough video games and writing enough music or poetry to keep myself from crying, to keep myself from feeling suicidal, to keep myself from feeling like I don't deserve to be on this earth because I was just a horrible, you know, example of a human being. And so for me, it was just showing up to school every day, putting on a brave face, writing my notes, doing all my tests, then going home and, you know, writing suicide letters. <laughs> and like, this was just kind of my routine and trying to distract myself from my feelings through video games and movies and things like that. Why did you feel you didn't deserve to be on this earth? I just, I just kind of felt like I sucked as a person. I felt like, not just, not that I just sucked as a person, I sucked as a man. When I was going through all of those things, I, I just felt like I had no bravery. Because I felt like, again, the issue was me. So when I had trouble talking to people, I couldn't make friends, obviously, because I couldn't talk to anybody. I couldn't have a girlfriend, obviously, because I couldn't talk to anybody. I had trouble leaving my house. You know, my brothers made me feel, like, really strange. They're like, why don't you just go outside? Why is it so hard? Um, you know, so that just made me feel worse. My mom, she was there but not there. and She never, she was just dealing with her own stuff so much that my feelings were neglected, my emotional person was neglected by her because she just was not able to do it no disrespect to her i don't blame her at all for it but it's just the reality of the situation so you know i just felt like i wasn't worth it to anybody because i had no friends i had no girl my brothers ridiculed me uh you know made me feel like i was just weird and strange and my mom was just unable to be, she wasn't really a nurturing person in general, but now she was less able to be that person. So I was like completely isolated and alone. So I felt like if no one gives a shit about me, maybe it's because of me. Like maybe I suck. Was it the social pressures of like, this is what a man should be like, this is how you should behave? Was it that influence and messaging? that really caused a lot of the anxiety and depression that you felt? Um, I wouldn't say it caused a lot of the anxiety and depression. I, I would say that it exacerbated it, definitely. Um, I felt like I wasn't man enough in the sense that I wasn't a kid that got into fights very much. I avoided them. I would try to talk my way out of situations. And, you know, I, again, I grew up in a culture where if you didn't fight, like, you were soft. I was also in a culture where, you know, having a lot of girls or the interest of a lot of, of, a lot of girls or talking to a lot of girls 
meant you were more of a man. And again, that just wasn't me. I mean, yeah, I, I was definitely interested in women, but it wasn't, you know, the main priority of my life in the sense that I wasn't, even if I wasn't so shy or socially anxious or whatever you want to call it, but no, I'll call it socially anxious. Even if I wasn't so socially anxious as a kid, I was not, you know, depressed or not dealing with anxiety. I still wasn't of the personality to go around um, hitting on girls all the time. And, you know, that's just what, it wasn't how I was raised. It wasn't me. And, you know, my brothers and, you know, my, my friends, um, you know, people who I played basketball with, they made me, they would say, yo, are you gay? And things like that. Because I wasn't staring down women like a piece of meat or talking to them like they were a piece of meat. And, um, you know, just I, I, I avoided trouble and I avoided conflict. And, you know, so that meant I was soft. Um, and, you know, I had all these issues with anxiety and um, I was a sensitive person who, you know, it was it was. Hard. You know how guys are sometimes where, you know, they make, um, you know, jokes to each other, but they're kind of like insults at the same time. Yeah, right. So I was like pretty sensitive as a kid. So I wasn't good at figuring out that aspect of, of how the way guys socialize. So, you know, people thought I was soft or you know what I mean? So then it made me feel like, yeah, maybe I'm soft or, you know, maybe I'm a nerd because I was into, you know, video games. Um, and back then, when you, you know, when I was growing up, being into video games meant you were a nerd. Nowadays, it's just like whatever. But when I was growing up, it meant you were a nerd. So you're again, you're not like, you don't have that level of machismo, I guess. You didn't fit the mold, right? And that's really where it sounds like a lot of the problems came from, is because you acted and behaved differently than what your brothers and your peers did. That that created a lot of turmoil for you personally in your life. Yeah, you know, I was just, you know, I was just kind of a kid who I was artsy and nerdy and into books, even though I like sports a lot. But I was kind of like the guy on the team who, you know, I was a, I was a good player. But after the, the game was over, I wasn't like hanging out with the guys kind of thing, you know? Right. I do want to ask you, I know today you talk a lot about mental health and that there's a lot of stigmas about people opening up around mental health. And I think you specifically speak in high school. Why is it challenging for people to open up about mental health when it is something that's so prevalent in society today? Well, let's look at it this way. We just had, you know, that big shooting in Orlando, and then, you know, there have been other shootings and other just anytime there's like unprecedented unprecedented violence you either get two things you get terrorism or you get that person had a mental health issue right right a hundred percent it's either one category or the other exactly or you know in this case <laughs> the latest case both um you know from the perspective of the media uh and so that's part of it you know, mental health issues mean you're dangerous or you're somehow just like screwed up in the head and just which means you're screwed up as a person. Um, and everyone, I think, you know, human beings, we're a very social species and we're a species that 
gravitates toward community um, on some level. So to be a part of community, you kind of need to feel normal with respect to your peers. And so saying I have a mental health issue or I have these feelings that are difficult or can't explain, a lot of people just make you feel like that makes you not normal. So what that does is that then severs your your ties to be a part of normal community. So people don't want that to happen to them, so they stay quiet. Right? They suffer in silence because suffering in silence and still being seen as somewhat normal and part of, you know, normal community, uh, I think feels safer to people than to be vulnerable and to say this is what I'm going through um, at the risk of being excluded from community. Well, we talked about this when we first met at dinner where I talked about how I recently came forward about being bisexual and it's the exact things that you're talking about. It's I didn't want to be excluded. This is something that I lived with for over a decade, but I knew that like none of my other guy friends, you know, had an interest in men and women, right? So on the surface, all I showed was the interest in women and then behind the scenes I had this interest in men. But I always felt that that wasn't normal because nobody else did it. And like you talked about earlier, it's like, you know, machoism, this whole thing. It's like how we should always be going after women and how we treat them like me. And so when I didn't fit that stereotype is when that created a lot of pain and turmoil for me. And that gradually built up for years and years until it got to the point where I was living out more and more in my bisexual life. But I wasn't talking about it openly to the people around me and in my life, which kind of started creating problems for me. And that was the moment where I really had to come forward and be like, look, like, this is just who I am and accept myself for who I was because it just got to the point where it wasn't healthy having this double life and hiding it because, and I thought for sure people were going to turn their backs on me and walk away from me, but none of that happened, right? And I think that's a big thing about any kind of stigma is that you always fear the worst case scenario but the reality of it is never as bad as it you think it's going to be. That the, and I think in a lot of ways that's that's really true. First of all, I want to say you know, that's really brave that you were able to do that, man, because I know that that's not easy, especially as like a dude. And I know that you grew up um, as an athlete yourself, so you know what the culture is like. Well, it wasn't easy, like you said, like yeah, as an athlete and also grew up in a very Eastern European Catholic household where it's like, it was, you know, our family is very big on the institute of marriage and family, but the idea of a man and a woman getting married and having children in that traditional sense, not in the more progressive sense that some people are having families today. Yeah, exactly. That's a lot of pressure, especially when you grow up with that. Massive pressure. Immense. Like, I'm proud of you, bro, for being able to just stand up and be who you are because I think that's one of the most difficult things about being a human being in any society really I think a lot of people are, are trying their best to fit the image of what they feel they should be rather than being what they actually are well we talked about this it's the act of vulnerability and how that part is challenging especially for men now where we grew up with this messaging that men don't show feelings men don't cry, that expressing things like mental health, like you talked about, it's challenging because, you know, it's 
it's almost a sign of weakness, even though it's something that's very real and going on inside you. You don't want to talk about it because you feel it might be betrayed. Yeah, exactly. Dudes don't talk about feelings, right? And you know, and if you do, you, you get called some really derogatory names, and you, you're made to feel like dirt. Even beyond, you know, the mental health um, thing, like just even say, you know, you broke up with your girl. Or she broke up with you, whatever reason, you're separated. And it's hard to just go to your boys and be like, yo, dog, like, I hurt right now. Like, this is, like, I'm heartbroken. You know, and even though you know you're heartbroken and your friends know you're heartbroken, no one ever says, yo, what's up? How are you doing? Like, actually, you, you never actually talk about your feelings. It's just like, that person is there and you maybe you watch the game and drink some beers or whatever. You're just encouraged to go sleep with somebody else to get over it, right? There's no actual, yeah, like, talking about it. I think that's a big difference between men and women. Is like when women have a breakup, they can call up their best friends or their closest friends, and they'll really open up their emotional side. But for men, exactly like you said, there's a lack there where it's like you'll go drink a beer and you'll talk about sports, but you're not really having, you know, the real conversation to get over what needs to happen. And that's, that's exactly what it is. That you don't get to process, and you know, and you also don't get the opportunity to connect. And I think that's an issue with a lot of men. Is that you know we are, we we have friends and we have our buddies and stuff like that, but we're not connecting on that on that like emotional level. Um, so it's like, yeah, you have your friends, you play sports together, you know, you go go to the bar together, you know, maybe you, you take trips together. They're like your hangout buddies. When you really need them on an emotional level, I find a lot of guys have trouble. It's almost like we apologize to each other for having emotions. You know, I've had some of my friends come up to me and talk to me about things they're going through and talk to me about it as if they're ashamed of having feelings. Like, man, I'm really going through this thing. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to bring this to you. Like, why are you sorry to bring it to me? Like, you're a human being. Right? You know, we, we were made with emotions for a reason. If we deprive ourselves of feeling these things and expressing these things, what happens? It all bottles up, and then it comes out either, in my experience, either in some kind of violence, whether it's sexual physical or you know violence towards oneself with like your own thoughts or it comes out in some form of addiction um whether that you know alcohol drugs um you know sex uh internet addiction video game addiction something right so i mean negative outcomes to this lack of expression well and that's why you need a healthy way to express your emotion because they are going to come out one way or another one of my good friends and mentors, Jordan Gray, he always says emotions, you know, like if you suppress them, they just go deep inside and you just lift weights and they get stronger and stronger and they work out and then they come back up to the surface and they come back stronger. And if you keep pushing them back, all they do is they go down in the basement, keep working out until eventually they come out, like you said. And that might be in a positive, but a lot of ways it typically tends to be negative, right? Addiction, alcohol, things like that, or anger because it's not a healthy expressions of the emotions that we have. Definitely. I, I agree fully. And I experienced it. I would say that 
a lot of my struggles with depression were a result of my lack of expression. And then what happened too was I did have issues with addiction. I had issues with video game addiction. I had issues with internet addiction. And I had issues with sex addiction. And, you know, these were all just, I think, a product of my inability to express things. And the funny thing is, you know, I finally went to therapy when I was 22, I think 22 or 23 years old. And that set me on the path to starting to work out my emotions and learning how to express things because I didn't really express anything ever. Um, And learning how to express things and just work through these emotions. And guess what? Everything else in my life just started to fall into place. My relationships became better. Um, Not just romantic, but uh, friendships, family relationships got better. My relationship with myself got better. Um, I started to do started to do better, you know, in my work life, my professional life. I started to have all these amazing opportunities and experiences, you know, and my addictions just went away. I, I didn't need to, you know, there's even a point in time where I was, I was smoking a lot of weed and, you know, doing a lot of drinking. I was very close to being like an alcoholic. You know, I, I would say there was probably about four or five months in my life where I was a functioning alcoholic you know, coming home every day from work and, you know, drinking and smoking weed, you know, because I just didn't want to feel anything. Um, but, you know, as as I dealt with all the feelings, I just didn't feel the need to drink to get drunk, get high, sleep with, a you know, a, a woman. Those urges just went away as I got better on the inside. In your talk, you you mentioned that yeah, going to a therapist was one of the best things you did in your life. I believe you said in six months you learned more than you did six years. What are yeah. you talked about how she taught you some coping strategies? What did you learn from that experience of going to a therapist? What did she teach you? She taught me that it was human to experience the things I was experiencing, and that what I was experiencing was, first of all, a result of a lot of the chaotic real-life events that happened in my life and that my reactions to those things were normal and not only normal but valid, and it was okay. You know, I I started at the beginning of our therapy sessions. I slowly started to tell her about events in my life and then feelings attached to them and fully expecting be I expected her to react in such a way that she was showing disapproval of me feeling a certain thing or reacting a certain way and you know I would tell her stories and she would just listen and take it in and you know it didn't phase her <laughs> it was just like yeah okay that happened well, let's talk about it some more you know and it, everything was just normal for her and it was the first time in my life where I felt like all the things I experienced and the feelings attached to it were normal. And it made me feel like, hold on, like I'm actually a decent person, a decent human being, and I'm not messed up. You know, I went through a lot of, you know, garbage and hard times, but, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm a bad person. And, you know, 
feeling suicidal doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Feeling depressed doesn't mean I'm a bad person. You know, being super anxious and scared to talk to anybody or scared to go outside or be in a crowd of people, um, that doesn't make me a bad person. They're just feelings and it's okay to have them because I'm a human being and it's normal. So just, I think that was one of the biggest things, just the normalization of human emotion. And I got that a lot through um, my therapist. That is so interesting because the very first time that I felt normalization with my sexuality was when I told one of the girls that I was dating and she was bisexual and she just accepted me. Like, I thought for sure, like, our relationship was going to be over. Like, it was a deal breaker, done, that's it. And she just looked at me and was like, cool. And just like, you know, like, no adverse reaction, no negativity, just like, just loved and accepted me for who I was. And it was so refreshing to get that kind of response because for the longest time in my life, every story in my head was if I told somebody who knows me about this, they're going to turn their back right away because that's just how I had internalized it in my mind. So when she was like, you know, this is totally normal and just accept it, it was like, so refreshing and that really began the momentum of me starting to come forward because eventually me and her part of ways I dated another girl but same thing when I told her she totally accepted me and just like loved me more for it and so it was interesting how everything that I thought about it and what it was gonna the adversity was gonna create for me it never happened mm-hmm. that feeling it's like <laughs> It's like, you know, getting a forecast that it's going to rain, but it's really a sunny day kind of thing. And, you know, it's an amazing feeling, right? Oh, 100%. Because you're expecting one thing, and then you get a completely different outcome on the other end of it. For sure. Cathartic. It's like freedom, honestly. It's like you've been released from the chains of expectation, and you're allowed to be a person now. You're free to go be, and you realize that, you know, the stigma that I was living with for so long, it wasn't, I'm like, you know, this is normal. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's like, there are other men who feel this way, but because it's like, no one really talks about it and it's not really like, you know, advertised, it's like, then you feel like there's something wrong with you, like the way you felt, where it's just like, you're less of a human being for that. Exactly. Exactly. And then you realize that, Anyone who has a problem with it, that's their problem. That's not my problem. That's their issue. And they need to, you know, go solve their problem. And maybe I'll even talk to them and have, you know, real conversations about this and maybe hopefully help them understand what it is to be, you know, who I am and what my experiences are. But ultimately, I I learned that I can't internalize the opinions of others. Looking back at your life, I want to ask, is there anything you feel that was like a guiding light to it? Anything that kind of really helped you through the process to kind of stay out of trouble and make good decisions? I think the best thing that, or probably the biggest influence for me was the fact that I got good grades because it meant that I had some sort of a future despite all the chaos in my life, I could still, you know, if I got good grades, 
I can still make something decent of my life. And um, so, you know, even when I was flirting with the streets and you know, I sold a little drugs here and there and, you know, almost became a pimp, actually, at one point in my life. And but it was like I'm getting good grades. And then I ended up, you know, at this prestigious university and I was getting pretty good grades there, too, without really putting in that much effort. So it was like I still have this thing that's valuable to society that keeps me connected to society on some level. Um, so it made me not want to give up on myself. And then, you know, um, as a part of that, because I got good grades, I had a lot of teachers tell me, you know, they believed in me and that, you know, I, I had a special mind and I was a special person and I could do great things in life if I just stayed um, on the right path and applied myself and you know they believed in me way more than I believed in myself but I felt like if those people have this kind of confidence in me and you know throughout high school they were pretty my support system was pretty much teachers so I didn't want to let them down so I, I tried my best to not get arrested which I haven't been thank God and just, you know, I tried my best to do the best that I could with the circumstances I had. And thankfully, I've been able to um, rebuild my life into something that I find to be pretty beautiful right now. Um, I, I love my life a lot. I love myself, and that's amazing um, because there were certainly moments in my life where I did not feel that way. I'm proud of you. I feel you've really overcome a lot of adversity and it would have been very easy for you to go down a certain path and you chose the higher road. And so you really do stand for higher principle and higher values. And so it's been an honor having you on the show. I do like asking all my guests, uh, you know, this podcast is called Your Next Chapter. What's next for Asante? Where do you go from here? Where do you see yourself going? Next, <laughs> next for me. Um, you know, you asked me a question earlier about, you know, what my current chapter is. And I would have called it moments before sunrise. So what's next for me is all of my dreams coming true, man. Everything that I've dreamed for, it's going to come true. Everything I've ever dreamed about, the person I've always wanted to be, I'm, I'm going to become that. And that that's the next step for me. You know, I went through all of this darkness in my life, and now I'm transitioning out of it. And the next stage of my life is, you know, beyond the transition, beyond the horizon. And just being the person and living the life I've always wanted to live. So, yeah, I think that's it for me. I mean, I just... A phoenix rising from the ashes. There it is, man. Perfect. Phoenix. <laughs> um, that's it. Just spreading my wings and soaring through the sky. That's it. Is there any last bits of advice or anything you want to share with the audience before we wrap up here? Never give up. Never, ever, 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 ever give up. Um, you know, uh, just a few things. I, I feel like 
when people are approached with circumstances that could potentially change their life for the better. Sometimes you have people in your life that say, you know, that it's not possible or that you can't do it. And so I like to say, instead of asking why, how about why not? Because I think that anything is possible. Possibilities are only limited by our motivation to do the things necessary to make what other people feel is impossible possible. Um, so honestly, just try everything at least once. Um, be good to people. You'll get further in the world by being good to people than you will by trying to step over them. Um, embrace every moment of every day, even the parts that suck. Um, it's okay when things suck sometimes. You know, just allow yourself to feel it and say, you know, yeah, it sucks right now, but all pain is temporary. Even if the pain lasts for five years, it's still temporary. It just feels like a long time. Um, and yeah, just never, ever giving up and never giving up hope because hope always exists. Everything is possible. Um, believe that you can make your dreams come true. Just never, ever give up on yourself or anybody else. For instance, my father was pretty terrible at, at being a father when I was a kid. He has since had several other children, and now he's really terrific at being a father. And I'm really proud of him and the kind of father that he is kind of now reflects the kind of father I want to be. Whereas when I was a kid, the kind of father he was reflected the kind of father I would never want to be. So it's interesting how things turn out. Things change. They don't stay the same forever. Yeah, you know, um, things change and yeah, things, yeah, things change, people change, and usually people change for the better in my experience. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but I know you do some spoken word and some hip-hop sometimes in presentations. You can take the Fifth Amendment if you don't have anything ready, because I did not prep you at all. Is there <laughs> anything that you have on the spot that you could throw down? Um, uh, yeah, I guess there's a few things, a few things. Um, How much time do I got? Can I do more than one? <laughs> yeah, you can do more than one. Okay, so... Um, this one, um, hopefully I remember all the lyrics to it. Uh, this is a poem. I actually wrote this poem when I was 18 years old in high school. Um, I was having a hopeful day. I wouldn't say a good day, but a more hopeful day than what most of my days were characterized as at that point in time. So it goes like this. Dreams are wasted through confusion. Empty lives are filled with nothing but hope for life's conclusion. But the strength of spirit and unwavering faith of humans provides obtrusion for suicidal delusion. Instead, perseverance is determined to find a solution. Hit with the realization that reclusion was not the solution for my suicidal delusion, as it only impeded my progress in social institutions, I sifted through the mental pollution to find the remedy for my soul's contusion. Through laughter and amusement, I was finally able to enjoy life's music. 
once taken for granted, now I try to use it, but sometimes fall back into the pit where I foolishly abuse it. Now I've been beaten down by life, but I've lived through the bruises, only to realize that whether Christian, Islamic, or Jewish, Hindu, Sikh, or Buddhist, that you need to open your ears in order to hear life's music. Beautiful. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Cool. Cool. I think that's it, man. I think that, that ties into what I was saying. <laughs> it's a beautiful way to wrap it up. If people want to find you, is there any way to reach out to you? I believe you got a Twitter account. What's the best way to uh, track you down for anyone, audience member that wants to shout out to you? Um, yeah, I, I think probably the best way is Twitter. So um, Asante V at um, what at Asante V. Um, I'm not that good at social media, so that's A S A N T E capital V. So that's my Twitter handle. Cool. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate your time, Asante. No problem. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. It was an honor. And yeah, just thank you from the bottom of my heart, man. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my podcast with Asante. I hope you guys enjoyed that. We really dove into what happens when we cover up our emotions and don't have a healthy way to express that. Whether you're a man or a woman, we need to be able to have people to confine our emotions and what we're going through and as humans to really be able to work through any problems that we're having in our day-to-day lives. If that podcast resonated with you, the one thing I ask that you share with one other person, if you want the latest podcast sent directly to you, jump on my email list at philipserpinski.com and have all the episodes sent directly to you. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I look forward to having you on the show next time.